Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, we're tackling some uh, thorny Dharma questions on the show today. This is stuff that can trip a lot of us up pretty badly, actually. For example, how do you love somebody without being attached? Or how do you love yourself when the self is allegedly an illusion? We're going to get into these questions and much, much more with my guest today, who is a repeat customer. His name is Kevin Griffin. The first time Kevin was on this show, we talked a lot about the nature of craving and addiction. I enjoyed that conversation immensely. Apparently, you did as well, because the numbers were awesome. So we're bringing him back on. Kevin, for the uninitiated, is both a longtime Buddhist practitioner and also a 12-step participant. This time he's back with a semi-skeptical take on loving kindness, that venerable, if somewhat misunderstood, Buddhist concept and practice. Our conversation really is going to center around a book that Kevin wrote called Living Kindness, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. Kevin's book is actually being re-released this month with a slightly new title, Living Kindness, Meta Practice for the Whole of Our Lives. So we thought it would be a great time to share this episode again right here on this feed. In this conversation, we talk about the difference between loving kindness and living kindness, the dangers of modern loving kindness practice. He argues that if it stays on the cushion, it's uh, focused on a feeling, and feelings are, of course, impermanent. We also talk about the idea that you don't have to feel love all of the time, but you can still seek to handle situations with this. And uh, this is very much a, a non-mellifluous Buddhist way of saying it, but non-ill will. And we talk about a Buddhist text called the Metta Sutta. I do want to note that the interview does include brief references to addiction. So heads up on that. Having said that, we'll get started with Kevin Griffin right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Thank you. 
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Kevin Griffin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me back. I'm amazed. I assumed, you know, I'd be on the blacklist after my last time. <laughs> I always assume the worst, so that's me. <laughs> oh, that, that might be a subject for discussion. <laughs> <laughs> we could do another time. So we're talking about love and kindness today, and, and I know we're going to get into your view of what some of us may kind of get wrong about this. <laughs> but before we get into what we may get wrong about it, for the uninitiated, how would you describe love and kindness or metta, M-E-T-T-A, practice? What is it? So metta practice, as opposed to just metta itself. Either or both. Well, I mean, see, that's even a really important distinction for me. So there's a traditional metta practice. We call it traditional. The Buddha did not teach it, but it comes from... I think about 500 AD, the Vasudhimaga, so get <laughs> the path of purification, which was a, a commentary on the teachings of the Buddha. And in that, we find this practice, which really was made most famous by Sharon Salzberg, who I know, know you know well. And it's a very intentional way of trying to develop loving feelings. And it uses phrases where you repeat phrases, typically, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe. And there are many other variations on the phrases, but along those lines, so that just noticing that they are not sort of exactly prayers and they're not demands, but they're sort of requests. The systematic part besides the phrases is that we go through different categories of people, starting with the self, not necessarily, often starting with the self. Some people prefer to start with something easier like your cat, you know, because which is not a person, I guess, but uh, can be helpful, easy one to feel love towards. So we kind of start with the easy ones and then work with our dear ones and then work with what we call neutral people, which is just sort of like everybody that you don't know essentially. And then into difficult people, and, and often it's just you pick one difficult person. And so after you've gone through those categories, repeating these phrases, and kind of feeling the breath in your body, and feeling the breath in your heart center in the middle of the chest, so you're trying to kind of connect with this feeling. And once you go through those categories, then you do a practice they call radiating, just sort of radiating loving kindness out to all beings, ultimately. And, and I, I like to do that in sort of a almost geographical way, imagining where I live, my neighborhood, and then my city, and then outward, you know, around the planet. 
And you can do the whole universe if you're, you know, ambitious. So it's very systematic and fairly simple in terms of how it's done. And and what I think, one of the things that's very appealing about it is that it gives us something very specific to do. You know, because a lot of times when you're just trying to follow your breath or just try to be mindful, it's hard to figure out what what am I doing? Like the breath that seems so ephemeral, you know, like you're kind of drifting around. But so the meta form uh, really helps the mind, I think, to stay focused, which is, again, one of its values, one of its peripheral values. So that's the practice. But you made a distinction between the practice and the quality of mind. Yeah. So my book, Living Kindness, kind of goes through this, is what was the Buddha really talking about? And are we getting it right? And, And in what ways are we getting it I don't even like to say wrong, but are we missing something? And so just the, you know, the word loving kindness or the compound loving kindness is sort of awkward to start with and confusing because if it's love, why do you have to add kindness to it? And then, of course, we realize, well, because in our language, in our culture, love can mean a lot of different things that aren't about kindness, you know. They can be about sex. They can be about desire. It can be about, you know, food or, you know, your latest Netflix show. So we add kindness to, to clarify that. So, okay, but that still sort of doesn't explain too much to me. So I go back to the suttas, the early Buddhist teachings, to try to see what the Buddha is talking about. And this is where... For me, it becomes interesting because so much of what the Buddha talked about when he was talking about loving kindness was not loving kindness, <laughs> was non, what he would call non-ill will. And so you have a typical, like we run into these phrases in the, in the suttas that are sort of, what? What's he mean by that? Why, why is he even saying that? Why doesn't he just say love? And that then opens up a whole kind of area to think about. First of all, that the heart of the Buddhist teaching is about letting go. So if he says you should love people, it's sort of creating the potential for craving and for attachment. So instead of that, he says, just don't hate people. It's an interesting distinction because I find it difficult to get that motivated necessarily to love everybody. I, I, can, I can have compassion and kind of a broad sense of caring for the world. But again, this word love sort of suggests that I'm supposed to feel something kind of juicy and warm and affectionate. You know, and that comes and goes. <laughs> So if I'm supposed to be feeling love, well, number one thing we know about feelings is that they are impermanent. So I'm putting myself into this sort of losing proposition already by saying, I'm going to cultivate loving kindness for all beings and I'm going to feel love for all beings. It means that a lot of the time I'm going to feel that I'm failing, Hmm. that I'm going to be coming up short. I'm not going to be able to feel that all the time. So then what do I do? Do I feel bad about myself? Then I'm 
doing the opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing, right? So if I put that aside necessarily as my goal and just say, what if I can practice non-ill will? Oh, well, that's about letting go, right? And that's more natural to me in my practice because it's kind of what I'm taught from the beginning of my meditation practice is to let go. It's There is something kind of like, oh, you know, I'm taught so much about letting go. And then somebody comes in and says, oh, now we want you to add this thing, cultivate this thing. I mean, it's a beautiful practice and it can have, you can have beautiful experiences with it, but we can't hold on to those experiences. So I think it's really valuable to do the loving kindness practice, but then to take it beyond that and use it really as an insight practice. That is, what you see through doing the loving kindness practice is what you want to carry with you that isn't so much impermanent. You know, our insights are things that we can sort of arouse in a moment, just like, oh, how do I want to think about this? How do I want to handle this situation? Oh, I want to handle it with kindness. I want to handle it with non-ill will. And so I don't have to necessarily feel love towards someone, but I can act then more skillfully, which is why I came up with this term, living kindness. I think it might be worth saying more about this distinction that exists in your mind between living kindness and loving kindness. Yeah, yeah. So the first distinction is this distinction between doing a meditation practice and then the rest of your life, mm-hmm. which, again, we know it can be great to meditate. And hopefully it's not always, but, you know, you can have these wonderful moments. But the real challenge for most of us is what do we do with that at the end of the retreat or at the end of the sitting? When I put the spiritual book down and, you know, walk into the kitchen and face a pile of dishes, you know, uh, how do I take this practice into my life that's realistic? You know, because, and I guess for me, it's not realistic to just walk around, you know, I love everybody, everything is peace and joy, you know, it's, you know, I've had those moments, they come and go again. And so it's, how can I apply this? And so, so then, There are these simple ideas, maybe simple, I don't know, sometimes very challenging, but but ideas that the Buddha is putting forth. There's a beautiful one in one of the suttas where the Buddha is asking one of his monks how he practices kind of in a harmonious way with these other monks that he's living with. And they're kind of on on a retreat, like the three of them out in the forest. And, and the Buddha is saying the phrase is, how do you blend like milk and water? And the, the monk, Anuruddha, says, I think to myself, why not put aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Well, that kind of epitomizes like living kindness to me, putting aside my own desires in the moment and doing things for someone else. And and I actually came upon that sutta when my daughter was just like a toddler. And I thought, oh, this is parenting. This is exactly what you do as a parent. Put aside what I wish to do and do what this venerable one, this venerable two-year-old needs me to do. And that was very inspiring for me because 
you know, if you're a serious meditator and you have kids, which I think you've had this experience, they can kind of intrude. They might seem to be intruding on your practice. And when you realize, oh, no, my practice is to take care of this venerable one, is to put aside what I wish to do, that I am practicing loving kindness when I do that. Oh, that's, that's a gift to me. It's like, oh, okay, right. Because we can turn our practice into this precious little thing of like, oh, it's this meditation. And when I'm in these particular states, you know, and and I'm feeling all this love, that's when, that's my practice. The rest of my life, not so much. The way the Buddha talks about love or loving kindness, and I guess we could parse those words, might be worth doing that at some point, but... The way he talks about metta, at least, it seems at times inaccessible to me. You have a quote from the Buddha that you've highlighted um, in your book where he said, even if your limbs are being sawed off by (laughs) bandits, if a thought of ill will arises in the mind, you are not practicing what I teach. Yeah. One of my favorite lines, (laughs) just because it's so, I don't know, I I guess I'm kind of perverse in some way. It, It seems so ridiculous. And it certainly will undercut any spiritual pride we might have, you know, any spiritual ego. If we think we have evolved to the point of being enlightened in some way, all we have to do is ask someone to start sawing off our limbs and see how we (laughs) we handle it. So, you know, I talked to uh, one of my monastic teachers, Ajahn Pasano, who actually was really kind enough to help me with this manuscript. And he takes more of an attitude of this is this is more symbolic, that it's not literal. And maybe, I mean, he should know more than I do. But it was interesting when I was teaching this sutta to some college students at a Catholic college where I sometimes do a little teaching and and in the middle of offering it, I realized, oh, this is kind of the story of Christ on the cross. I thought, that's really interesting. What am I going to do with that? Because before that, I thought, well, no one could do this. But then I thought, well, that's actually sort of an archetype of, of Western spirituality, of the Judeo-Christian tradition of this person being crucified and saying, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they've done, you know. I think he also has some complaints to God after that. Or I'm not sure which comes first, the, why have you forsaken me? But we do have this ideal here. So maybe it's not so unrealistic. There's another story of a Chinese monk who was attacked by the Red Guard. I guess this was in the 60s. And uh, he was like in his 80s or something. And All his students ran away. He stayed in the monastery, and the Red Guard came and beat him nearly to death. And when his students came back to the monastery, they they found him, and they they were saying to him, it's okay. You know, it it seems like you're trying to hang on to, to your life, and don't hold on to your life for us. And he said, I'm not holding on to my life for you. I'm holding on to it for those Red Guards, because the karma for them would be just too terrible if I were to die. And so he recovered and apparently lived quite a few more years afterward. So another sort of model 
of this just unimaginable compassion and forgiveness. I try to take the Buddhist teachings as literally as possible and accept my own shortcomings in regard to them and say, whether the Buddha meant this or not, I know I can't do that. I can't be that person, but that's okay. I don't have to be that person. You know, that's, uh, I'm not perfect. I'm not enlightened. You know, I have this vision and I think spiritual teachings are often about an idealized vision. Enlightenment itself is a kind of idealized vision that really, you know, what is it? Is it real? You know, I think one of the things that keeps us motivated on our path is to have these visions of of some kind of perfection. And maybe the humility of knowing you're not achieving it is is something healthy. So we can look at enlightenment, which is classically defined as the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. Or we can look at loving kindness, which the bar has been set by the Buddha of not feeling any ill will while somebody's sawing off your limbs. We can look (laughs) at this as we might look at the speed with which Michael Phelps swims a lap uh, as part of the extreme end of the human repertoire, but shouldn't discourage us from trying to swim. Uh, Yeah, fair enough. I think that's a good analogy. I also like to come back to something very simple, which is why I like this idea of just non-ill will. You know, that's a nice sort of ideal to live toward is, can I just not have ill will? There's one of the interesting pieces in the in the Vasudhimaga that I talked about that where the where this form of meditation comes from you know when when you get to the the meditation of sending loving kindness to the difficult person many people obviously have trouble with that and the Vasudhimaga actually suggests rather than trying to feel love for this difficult person or this enemy, they sometimes call it. Just try to make them into a neutral person. I like that one too, because it's, again, kind of like, oh, here's something I can do. I can just stop hating that person. I'm not going to want to go and embrace them. And it's hard for me to wish for them to be really happy and have everything that they want. But I I can maybe let go of hatred for them and just make them like a neutral person. So, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if I'm talking about out of both sides of my mouth, but but on the one hand, suggesting, oh, it's great to have these ideals. And on the other hand, saying, let's have achievable tasks as as practitioners, as meditators, as as people on some kind of... uh, I guess, spiritual journey. You know, one of the other models that I, I really like, Bhikkhu Analyo, one of the great scholars and translators of the text, um, sort of the next generation. He was a student of Bhikkhu Bodhi. He says that just following the five precepts of non-harming, to not, not kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to harm people sexually, uh, not using intoxicants to the point of heedlessness, just to follow those guidelines for living is an act of compassion. Because 
you're being non-harming, you know? And wow, that's, that's another one of those moments, like the realizing that taking care of my daughter was an act of loving kindness. It's another one of those moments when I realize, oh, I'm already, I'm already doing some of the good stuff. You know, I'm already, yeah, it is an act of compassion. And, and, you know, I think that when we get interested in excited about spiritual practice or Buddhism or whatever. And we, and we start to have these ideals, you know, we see these goals and enlightenment and as you were saying, like not, you know, not being angry with people who are sawing off our limbs and, and we lose sight of the fact that something as simple as taking the precept to not steal is actually a big deal. You know, that can we imagine if everybody in the world followed the precept of not stealing or of not killing, the world would be a completely different place. As individuals, we might not feel that we've done anything particularly special because we haven't gone out and murdered anybody today. But when we know that people are being murdered and killed both through individual hatred and and through state violence constantly. And we realize, oh, that actually is a big deal if I do that. I, I actually, I'm participating very much in a communal act of compassion. I want to go back to this non-ill will notion for a second. Please. My concern about it is that it feels a little neutral, a little dull in some way, you know, <laughs> a little cold. You know, I'm attracted to the notion of, you know, I talk about this a lot on the show. I don't want to pretend this is an original idea. I've stolen it from smarter people, but I'm <laughs> attracted to the notion of defining love down to just the human capacity, the mammalian capacity to care. Yeah. Any, you know, it can range from slightly north of neutral to you know, you complete me, Tom Cruise, uttering, you know, famous love lines in a, in a movie. <laughs> but non-ill will seems d- really firmly in, <laughs> in ne- neutrality. Yeah. And I get that anything north of neutrality could be clinging or attachment and contrary to the Buddha's, you know, primary goal, which is, you know, non-attachment, letting go. So how do we compute all this? Because caring seems to be pretty important in terms of the survival of the species. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And I think what I'm trying to suggest is let's have a baseline. Let's have our baseline be non-ill will. It's definitely not the end point. I mean, radiating kindness over the entire world. That's the line from the the Metta Sutta. Absolutely. I mean, beautiful and and something to practice and to pursue. I just like the idea that on my bad days, I can practice non-ill will. On my good days, I can radiate kindness over the entire world. And, And so not to, certainly I don't mean to suggest that that's the end point of practice. And I'm really actually pleased that you use the word care, because that's actually what I came to as I was particularly addressing the question of self-love was care. 
And I would suggest that care is living kindness because care is active, right? If we're talking about caring, not just I care about you, but I take care of you. I take care of me. I take care of the world. That's actually my, that's my translation for metta is care. And it's not an accurate translation at all. You know, it's not a translation of the Pali, but I'm, I'm completely unsatisfied with the tr- translations that say, well, it's more like friendliness. I'm like, that leaves me kind of cold. But care, because this question of self-love, which is a persistent one in our culture and in the mindfulness community and in the Buddhist community, especially when people are challenged to, to do loving kindness for themselves— I really like the idea of, okay, again, I don't have to feel all warm and fuzzy necessarily. Often when we're asked to practice self-love, there's an immediate problem of grading ourselves or, you know, trying to ask ourselves if we deserve it, if we've earned it. And I don't think that's what the Buddha means by loving yourself. Like, oh, check you know, check your spiritual resume. Are you a good enough person? But rather, can you take care of yourself? You know, and that comes back to very basic daily actions, behaviors. You know, do I feed myself? Do I rest when I'm tired? Do I exercise? If I'm feeling a spiritual hole, do I seek to fill it with something healthy and nurturing, or do I harm myself? Then I don't have to be grading myself and, oh, do I deserve love? I don't know, you know. But I do care about myself, and I do take care of myself. And that's what I think, in practical terms, that's loving myself. That's metta for myself. Much more of my conversation with Kevin Griffin after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The weather's getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince 
cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. And I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. How do you compute the seeming riddle of caring for yourself or others without attachment? (laughs) I'm glad you saved that one. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's a hard question. So... My immediate response is kind of in the same way that if we see someone fall down, we just go and help just pick them up. You know, it's not because we're attached to them that we help them to get up. So if we treat ourselves as just anybody (laughs) rather than as ourselves, just as we would treat another human being, and maybe even, hopefully, even just another being, then there's a spontaneous response to to suffering or to need, to, uh, to the need for care. And there doesn't have to be any, I'm attached to myself or I'm doing this because it's me, but if it were someone else who was hungry, I wouldn't give them food. You know, I think that's what comes to mind. That might not be, you know the most profound answer. <laughs> Let's assume it's not the most profound answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess what I'm getting at, though, is, is not just how we feel about ourselves, but any any being about whom we care. Yeah. How, you know, let's take your then toddler and now I assume somewhat older uh, yes. daughter and now I've got a son. I am very attached to my son. Oh, yeah. Six. Um, and so... <laughs> How can I love my son or my wife or my friends or my cats without clinging or without attaching? I would say you can't. And uh, I have a chapter on the sutta called Born from Those Who Are Dear. And it's another sutta that I discovered around that same time when my daughter was a small one. Yeah, she is. She's turning uh, 23 this week. And I saw the title of that sutta, and I thought, born from those who are dear, oh, this is going to be about loving your children and how sweet and wonderful it is. Uh, No, not so much. What the Buddha says is born from those who are dear is suffering. (laughs) He says, yes. So exactly what you're pointing to, attachment causes suffering. And it's in the sutta, a man comes to the Buddha, and his son has just died. And he's, you know, going to the Buddha for 
some kind of help, like bring my child back to life or, you know, what am I supposed to do? And the Buddha says to him, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are born from those who are dear. Okay, well, thanks for that, you know. It doesn't really seem like it's offering much hope. He tells this man, come to your senses, which I think is a very telling line. You know, it reminds me of John Kabat-Zinn's book, Coming to Our Senses, I think it's called. And, you know, with a, that's a common phrase in our language, come to your senses. But, you know, if we think of it in mindfulness terms, come to our senses means come into your body, come into your experience of your body. So, so he's trying to calm the man down by just telling him to, to be present with his experience. But as I've reflected on this sutta quite a bit, first of all, it's quite apparent that that's true. And, and the sutta goes on to, to kind of argue for the truth of that, that if we are attached to people, at some point we will have suffering around that attachment. It's not suggesting that having attachment to people is just continuous suffering, but that inevitably things will change. My daughter is living across the country and I miss her. And that's, that's painful, you know. But what I think the Buddha is talking about is have insight into the truth. And that if you have insight into the truth, then you don't experience dukkha. You can still experience pain, but it's not confused. You can remember, like, this is natural. This is what's supposed to happen. And that, for me, again, a lot of what the Buddha is saying is meant for me to understand the truth. And that if I understand the truth and I hold that with wisdom, with acceptance, and yes, with compassion, then it doesn't create dukkha. Because dukkha implies ignorance. It implies an, you don't understand reality. And that's why it's particularly painful. Because there's nothing quite so painful as going through an experience that doesn't make sense to you that hurts. Whereas when you go through something that makes sense to you that hurts, you can be with that. You can hold it. Okay, they're going to stick a needle in my arm right now. It's going to hurt. That's okay. I'm doing that so that I'll become vaccinated. Ouch, that hurt. Okay, but I'm not suffering, right? It's not dukkha. So that to me is, it's just a really critical idea because everybody, including ourselves, is going to die. You know, hopefully we'll get old beforehand, you know, which is also difficult. How do you hold that? I mean, that's just for me, especially as I get older, the, these are the really important questions about my practice. How do I hold these experiences? They're inevitably going to be difficult. The Buddha is not offering us, you know, a rose garden, you know. That's not the promise of the Dharma. The promise of the Dharma, to me, I know the ultimate promise is, oh, I'm going to let go of all attachment. But, you know, well, I've got it. Well, I've got attachment. To me, the promise is that if I understand the truth, I will not experience dukkha. 
I will still have pain, but I will not experience dukkha. Does that make sense to you? It does. It might be worth explaining the word dukkha for folks who are new to this. Right. So it's it's the term that shows up in these early teachings. And it's one of those words that's just, it can't be translated into English you know, directly, which says something about both what the Buddha was teaching and the culture he was in. Its literal meaning is something like an axle that, or a wheel that's on a bent axle. So I, I like the image of the, the grocery cart with the bad tire, and when you're pushing, it doesn't work. It's this feeling that things aren't right. It's this discomfort in the world, and I think it does really imply this confusion about reality. It is the pain of life, and that's kind of how the Buddha defines it. It's all the physical and mental pain of our existence. And yeah, fundamentally, he says that that's caused by our attachment. So maybe I'm exaggerating when I say that if we're not confused, we won't experience dukkha. Maybe we have to be fully enlightened not to experience dukkha. But to me, the real problem of it is when we're confused, when we just don't understand, why does this hurt? But I could see it being a turnoff for some people, and maybe even me, if the end point of this path is we're not going to love the people that we love the most in the same way. In other words, we're not going to be clinging. We're not going to be attached. That feels like a certain amount of frigidity is creeping into the relationship. Are you picking up what I'm putting down here? Absolutely. I think the Buddha is portrayed in this way, in the suttas, as really not having emotions about people. And I don't believe that. I believe that it is a creation of the people who put together the suttas, that they wanted to create the image of this sort of perfected otherworldly being who was not affected by anything. And I don't think that's true. And I don't think it's really what the Buddha is pointing to. Again, that's like, but we have to distinguish. I mean, first of all, let's distinguish attachment from love, right? Yeah, those are two very different things. You know, when we're talking about attachment, and of course, again, we have to kind of define terms. I mean, we're talking about an unhealthy kind of attachment, a needy attachment. I need you to be the way you are, and I need you to stay the way you are. Right, uh, I need that, which is like the problem. Like, I don't want my kid to grow up and leave me because she's abandoning me. You know, that's really unhealthy, right? And that's that's the kind of attachment I'm talking about. But love and caring for others. I mean, we see the Buddha as spending his whole life after an awakening just giving. Acting, it's said that his 45 years of teaching were an act of compassion. But to make it a little personal about the Buddha, there's also this image that I, I like to call upon where late in his life, he lived to be 80, late in his life, his best friends have died. And you can imagine this guy has now got all these followers, and a lot of them are young. And some of them are kind of annoying and behaving badly, and he has to 
deal with that. She's got this big organization now, you know, and I'm embellishing here, but this part I'm not embellishing. In one of the suttas, he says that the assembly of monks feels empty to him. And then he names a couple of his dear old friends, right? And then he quickly in the sutta says, I'm not suffering. <laughs> I don't want you to misunderstand. Uh, don't worry. I'm okay. I'm not suffering, you know. But I kind of go, yeah, who put that part in about how he's not suffering? Because I believe the first part. I believe that he is sad. I believe that he misses them. Mm. I don't think it belittles the Buddha. I think it makes him a greater teacher if we see him as having human emotions, because he was a human, you know, and he was a father. And there's suttas where he's teaching his son, you know, his son ordains, you know, there's got to be emotions going on there. So I, so I don't think that we're not supposed to love and care for people. It's that we have to watch out for the ways that our attachment creates suffering. And our attachment creates suffering if we expect them to stay this one way, or if we expect them never to get sick, or for us never to have a conflict with them, or for them not to leave us. So it's challenging, no doubt. Much more of my conversation with Kevin Griffin right after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job. Which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease let tidy care alert help keep an eye on your cat's health let's go back to self love <laughs> i sometimes think about like so if love is probably the greatest cliche of all time, self-love is even greater. And yet, it's a very powerful idea. It's had a big impact on me. 
And yet again, if you're a Buddhist, doing anything that concretizes or builds up the idea of a self mm. is kind of verboten. So, um, I don't know. What do you do with the, all of the foregoing? I think it actually helps to maybe start with the external. So, for me, getting sober was probably the biggest act of self-love I've ever done. And yet, it comes in the framework of you're an alcoholic, you know, or what, you know, taking on that kind of, which sounds like I'd hate myself if I were an alcoholic, you know. So, so the idea that I'm an alcoholic is terrible. That that doesn't sound like self love at all. And and it's probably one of the reasons people object to the having to say they're an alcoholic, which nobody has to say it if they don't want to. But but it was oh, when I stopped drinking and smoking dope all the time. I was taking care of myself much better. And so that was, as I say, the external. But on the internal, from the meditative standpoint, I think it's watching how you are creating suffering for yourself. So when we watch our thoughts and we see the ones that are really not helpful. When we realize that our thoughts are not who we are, then we can step away from them and not believe the self-hatred in the thoughts. If you start to watch your mind uh, in meditation, the thought, after a while, you start to see that the thoughts are just coming. They're just pouring out. And some of them will feel intentional, but then a lot of them won't. And as we establish mindfulness, we start to realize that we have this capacity to just watch, which means there's some aspect of mind that can just be aware that's separate from this, you know, just profusion of words and images and ideas that are pouring out or pouring through the mind. And so having that experience allows me then to question the thoughts. Because I see that the thoughts can be contradictory. One day or one minute, I can have one thought, and five minutes later, I can have another thought that's in total disagreement. So if I think that I am my thoughts, how can my thoughts contradict each other? So as I get gain that kind of distance from the thoughts, then the ones that sort of embody this negative self-image or self-hatred or you know the ways that I don't like myself, I can start to just see that, oh, that's just part of the crap that's being generated out of this. And it's, it comes and goes. It's not, it's not me. It's not true. And that allows me then to be more kind to myself, to say, oh, well, maybe I'm not just a loser or a or a jerk. 
You know? Maybe that's just an idea. Maybe the highest form of self-love is to see that there's no self at all. In, <laughs> in that, so you described seeing your thoughts and how contradictory they are, and, and the inference there is that there can't be some solid, coherent self from which they're emanating. They're just little quantum bursts of energy in the mind. And that once you see that there isn't some homunculus of you between your ears, <laughs> that it's just a messy process, often causing a lot of pain, then you can kind of direct some more care in your own direction. Am I anywhere near the point here? That makes perfect sense to me, yeah. And I think it does somewhat go back to that instinctive response to suffering, right? That's not about earning it. You know, if somebody's rolled into the hospital on a gurney, the doctor doesn't go, well, how, are you a good are you a good person? So getting back to our individual response, just as you're saying, if we're not judging ourselves, then we're just going to respond as we would to the suffering of any being. I think that that's what the Buddha is saying when he's talking about really unconditional love, metta. It's just not about individuals. He has a practice where oftentimes when the Buddha describes practicing loving kindness in the suttas, he just describes it as sending loving kindness in like the 10 directions. You know, and it's, it's very, it's sort of, there's no emotion there particularly. It's just this, it's this radiating, which it's kind of a beautiful practice when you can get to that place where you just sit and you just imagine that out of your, from your whole, all the pores in your body and from your mind and your heart and everything, there's just this like beaming rays of love going out and spreading and imagining it surrounding the world. And, and even, I like the image even of holding the world, you know, imagining that you have the earth in your arms and you're holding it and touching all the beings, you know, it's, Really, a lovely way to just connect and to and to feel loving kindness, which I was sort of somewhat discounting. I mean, I, it's it's beautiful. I love to feel loving kindness. Again, just I warn against the urge to feel it all the time, yeah. or the urge to make it into some special precious thing that only happens on the cushion, but then you walk around in your actual life and are a jerk to people. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and really, my most common daily experience of loving kindness is when I'm outside and I look at trees and listen to birds, basically. Those are kind of the things that birds and trees kind of like trigger it for me. Like I just like stop. Sometimes clouds, you know. So nature, you know. Uh, I think nature is a, it evokes loving kindness from us very naturally. It's one of the reasons, you know, the, I mean, the Buddha lived outside, right? And he says, go sit under a tree. You know, what does he say? It's, go sit under a tree. It's not like a random thing. And, and he became enlightened under a tree. And supposedly he was born under a tree. And then he died under two trees, two solid trees. So, uh, you know, I think there's a whole story about the Buddha and nature that we don't tell enough. 
I think I misspoke about self-love now that I think back. When I say this is the highest form of self-love is to see there's no self at all, I guess I think what I really should have said was more that it's kind of an act of mercy to yourself to see <laughs> that there's no solid self there to hate or to, to be pissed off at all the time. Yeah. To stop taking yourself so seriously, that seems like an act of self-love. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's an act of mercy, yes. I think that's right. That You know, it's an insight. The understanding of, of how we create self is an insight. And when we have that and we realize that it's a creation, then we are letting go of the attachment to self, which is ending suffering. And ending suffering brings happiness, which is another way of talking about love. Yeah. Can you get enlightened doing loving kindness practice? Because that <laughs> certainly seems like it would argue that, yes, you can. And yet it's often, there's a concept, um, many listeners will be familiar with this, but just for those who aren't, there's a concept of relative versus ultimate you know, and ult what is ultimately true is that nothing is really solid and stable. Everything's changing all the time. Nothing has a true essence, including you. What is relatively true is that you, Kevin, exist and I exist, and we have to put our pants on in the morning and make appointments for ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. This practice of loving kindness is often described as a relative practice. I am sending good wishes to you. And so would seem to be precluded that you could get enlightened doing this because you're you're failing to see the deep the the ultimate truth, perhaps. Well, anything I say will just be my own opinion. I have not become enlightened through doing this practice. So and I prefer <laughs> to speak from personal experience, but uh, <laughs> since I'm on a podcast and being asked a question, I'll try to say something useful. I think it does point to, first of all, that the Buddha is not talking about love in the sense that we conventionally think of it, and that, in fact, it is a practice of letting go, and that when we are radiating kindness through the entire world, there is a letting go of self in that. There is almost a kind of merging so there is this kind of oneness that we are trying to work toward in this practice. It's not really meant to be a dualistic practice. It's probably one of the things that I don't love about doing it in that formal way. May you be happy, may you be happy, and thinking of individual people and trying to project out to them. It, it feels much more natural to just sort of radiate love or be love. And in that sense, uh, yeah, I think that there's an awakening that can happen through that. You know, Jack Cornfield has a, a great essay. If you've never read it, it's called Enlightenments, plural. I think it's in one of his books, Bringing Home the Dharma, something like that. And in it, you know, he makes the argument that enlightenment takes many different forms. And then he talks about the Dalai Lama as sort of the the embodiment of compassion and, you know, some other teacher as the embodiment of emptiness. And then the, another teacher as the embodiment of just mindfulness. And so he, he kind of says, 
that enlightenment isn't one thing. Of course, the different schools will tell you that, no, enlightenment is what we tell you it is. <laughs> and the Theravadans have a very specific kind of map for it. And, and as you referred to, I guess we've talked about a little bit, and as it says in the sutta, there's something fundamentally about letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it seems like loving-kindness practice is a practice of letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's certainly a practice of letting go of hatred. And I would say that the risk in it is that it doesn't let go of greed for the feeling that we let we're mm. pra- if we're practicing for the feeling that we are staying attached there and it can be also not letting go of delusion because we can be trying to hold on to that feeling so clearly it's it is letting go of of hatred but um you know i think the metta sutta is trying to point to all three of these things i think the practice if done really in in its essence absolutely is a path to awakening a certain kind of enlightenment you know the the enlightenment of loving kindness this has been great as always um before we go can you just remind everybody of the name of the book and any other books that are worth mentioning that you've <laughs> written and where we can find you online etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. so yeah the the book i've been talking about is living kindness buddhist teachings for a troubled world and um, my website is kevingriffin.net, where my uh, five other books uh, get talked about. This is the one book that is not about addiction and recovery. So uh, the others are. Thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate you highlighting this and being interested in it. It's great. Thanks again to Kevin. Thanks as well to everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Jen Poyant. We get our scoring and mixing from Peter Bonaventure over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.
You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.